Welcome to episode 76 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, and that means we do astronomy just for the fun of it. And this podcast is how we share all the fun that we have of looking at the nighttime sky with people like you who also like to look uh, up and see the universe for themselves. So Shane, we're, we were talking about what, we'd, uh, what we would call this, this episode, and I was thinking that uh, you know, it's Christmas and, and it was pretty cold the other night. I thought I'd put a nice fire on uh, for us here. And, and maybe we could just talk about some of our observations. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do like the ambience <laughs> that your YouTube fire is, is creating. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, it's getting a little hot. Maybe I'll, I'll turn that down. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to burn yourself. Yeah. Boy, <laughs> it was cold the other night. <laughs> that yeah. was no joke. Yeah, that was a cold night. Um, and, and I decided, well, my, my observing goal that night was not very well matched for the weather. Um, what I wanted to see was um, Jupiter and Saturn at the earliest point possible in twilight. Um, and then compare that to how they looked in the darkness. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then try to kind of gauge the, like the brightness factor of Jupiter um, and how that may impact the ability to separate them on the 21st. So that meant I went out at sunset, which was 4.55 ish uh, PM locally. And uh, what was the temperature that night, Chris? Was... So the temperature was deceiving. And yes. so first of all, I should have asked you how your week was, but we're just, we're just jumping right into this. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that's the kind of week it was. So, man, it said it was only at my house, minus 17, I have a weather station. And I, I, yeah, it was, it, it seemed way colder than me than, than mine was reading. I mean, and uh, they were saying it was minus 20 or minus 21 uh, before the wind chill. And it was minus 28 to minus 31 with the wind. Um, now you had said that it was uh, chilly because I wrote you, I was, I was uh, very busy that day and, yeah. but I was kind of getting freed up and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm just going to set up. You're like, I'm already observing. And you just wrote and said, it's a little chilly. Now, <laughs> now people should understand Shane is from Saskatchewan. I am not from Saskatchewan. And this sort of phrase means something completely different depending on where you live in this world. So in Saskatchewanian, this means that it's so cold. So if somebody here says it's a little chilly, that means that it's so cold outside that no one in their right mind would venture out unless their house was on fire, so much so that you wouldn't be warmed enough by that fire going out. So, you know, your house should be burning down such that uh, it's not going to keep you warm when you go outside. So, I mean, boy, it is so cold here when it's cold. I cannot even explain it. So... Yeah, I end up getting like frost nip, but go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say cold, cold is really two things in terms of like dealing with it, you know, warm jacket and then mindset. And, and I'll share with you a, a book that I read. This is totally not related to anything astronomical, but um, it, it was a, it, it's a book on an explorer who um, skied or walked unassisted to the North pole, starting out in like the northernmost point of starting Canada. out in Regina, Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, almost, almost. That was the yeah. hardest part of the trip. The first <laughs> yeah. 30 miles. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a fascinating book. I, I you know, I love those types of books of, of extreme survival or challenges that people overcome. Mm. And, um, it's set up like on a day by day sort of diary entry book, right? Like you're basically reading his journal entries of this expedition. And he gives, um, you know, the daily temperatures and, and, and he has such a way of writing that it got to the point in this book where when they had a minus 30 degree day, I, I had visions of like a Hawaiian beach, you know, it just yeah. seemed like such a beautiful day when it was only minus 30 degrees Celsius. Out. So, yeah. you know, ever since I read that book when, you know, it's minus 30 around here, you know, I, I just say it's a little chilly. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really cold. So, so I kind of have really good gear depending on the temperature and, and it said minus 17 and I was just literally sitting outside and like I have a, a one spot where I can kind of see this conjunction when it's going to be at its best for, for uh, you know, maybe a couple hours in the evening. So I thought, well, this is, this is great. I'm just going to go right there. It's literally 
20 feet from my front door. And then, uh, holy moly, like I was out there and I was having trouble with something. I mean, yeah, it's minus 30. Like what, what is a simple or a small little hiccup in your, in your setup or observing at, at, uh, minus three or plus 10 is, is, uh, you know, a life and death struggle at minus 30. And, uh, and I, I don't know, like, I guess my, the wind was blowing the right way and I had my ears tucked into my hat, but man, like when I came in, like my right ear kind of, kind of swelled up, but, uh, I, I had extreme frostbite from a non-astronomical adventure when I was a teenager and, um, almost lost my ear. So, <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. So anyway, so I always do have to watch, watch that, uh, a fair bit, but Anyway, enough with the weather report. How was your conjunction uh, experience so far? I mean, I think we only had like a couple nights where you could see it and one of them was good. Yeah, yeah. So I saw it Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, Friday night was by far the best and that was the, the cold night that we just referenced. Um, mm-hmm. So um, maybe I'll just kind of recap it. Um, and I already mentioned the goal. So I wanted to see the difference between these two things, you know, in twilight and, and darkness. So I went out quite early at sunset because I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure when Jupiter and Saturn would become visible naked eye after mm-hmm. sunset. So, um, thank goodness the moon was up because that gave me something to do other rather other than just walking around trying to stay warm. Um, but at five twenty three p.m. local time is when I first captured uh, Jupiter naked eye. Um, I think if I would have had the the location in the sky a bit better, I think I probably could have got it a couple minutes earlier than that. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't scanning the right spot. So um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so about four minutes later, so at five twenty seven is when I was able to see Saturn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is about um, well, that's pretty close to thirty minutes right after sunset that yeah. I was able to see both naked eye. Yep. And, you know, Friday night, the, the separation was evident. There was no problem oh, with yeah. that. No. Um, so the telescope that I had out was the, uh, the old Frankenscope. So the 60 millimeter aperture refractor uh, with a focal length of 900 millimeters uh, using a 15 millimeter Antares Elite Plossel. So that gives me about three quarters of a degree for my field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives me the one millimeter exit pupil, which is somewhat desirable and uh 60 times magnification and yeah. you know chris and you and i have kind of exchanged a, a few a few texts about this yeah the views were actually better than i was expecting for how they low were. they were in the sky like that night i i think i think you know good. the cold the cold weather is a blessing and a curse when it comes to astronomy sometimes because yeah. uh you know that cold weather can can you know help equalize some of those layers of the atmosphere yeah. so and you it know, did that it, night yeah it, it certainly did so First of all, you know, what a view, you know, to see Jupiter and Saturn in a field of this. So, you know, my field of view at, at three quarters of a degree in the telescope is quite a narrow field of view to begin with mm-hmm. compared to what you and I are used to. Right. Yeah. And and to be able to see Jupiter and Saturn just like so casually in that field of view, like not yeah. stressing at the edges or anything like that. Um, yeah. You know, the rings of Saturn were so apparent. Um, you know, there was three of Jupiter's moons available. Uh, I was, you know, the Northern equatorial band was quite distinct. Um, yeah. and even some irregularities within the edges of the band were, uh, coming in and out with the seeing. Yeah. I saw um, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I just, I couldn't believe it. I really thought that, um, what I would see would be, uh, you know, the Jupiter disc mostly washed out. Yeah, you know, just appearing as light with maybe the like just a faint shading where the you know the equatorial bands are, yeah, um, and probably not even you know going from limb to limb, you know, probably just sort of in the middle. And then you know Saturn, I expected to see that you know kind of just this round disc with a you know a weird yeah kind of you know elongation along the the equator sort of yeah. The but ears, no, as Galileo put it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's a great description. Um, but no, it was, it was pretty good. Um, yeah. not as good as the views that we had earlier in the season, but wow. Um, far surpassed my expectations. How, how did yeah. you, uh, how did you enjoy your Friday night? Cause you were out for a little bit. Yeah, I was out. I don't think I was out. I know I wasn't out as long as you because of, uh, the challenge I had with, with the cold. I think just where I was set up, like it's very open where I live and, uh, 
and just where I had to set up to see it, the wind couldn't have been any more intense. Um, and at, you know, at minus 20 something with like a, like a 25 or 30 kilometer hour wind, that that's very, very cold. Um, so anyhow, yeah, it, it reminded me of a view that I would ex have expected, um, that you would get very frequently when I first was into astronomy. Like I thought that's kind of how things would just look most of the time where you have like, like really good seeing, even when things are low down, that you'd be able to see lots of detail on like both Jupiter and in the rings of Saturn in the same field <laughs> at the same time at high power. And, and, uh, and as you and I both, both know for doing this for a long time, that that doesn't uh, happen very frequently, but uh, it was just, just an amazing experience just to see um, those rings of Saturn and, you know, the one thing that really struck me, Shane, I'm not sure if you noticed this as well, but I really noted the tonal differences. So for mm -hmm. me, when I typically look at Saturn, it appears like a very lightish sort of sandy, yellowy color, very sort of a brighter color, maybe, maybe more towards like a, like a pale lemon or something like mm -hmm. that, I should mm -hmm. say. And then, um, Last, uh, on Friday night, when we were looking at it, um, to me with Jupiter in the same field of view where Jupiter typically looks, um, more like a ruddy Brown, um, while Saturn looked like, um, very deep, like wet sand, um, a very dark, like sandy color and Jupiter looked very bright and, and way more white, uh, than it typically does. And so this, this comparison of, of the color tones um, to me was completely unexpected. I, I had no idea I, I would see this. Um, and I'm not sure if you noticed the same thing. 100%. I'm glad you brought that up because um, I, I had the, you know, very similar thoughts. Like I've always thought Jupiter to be like a far more colorful planet um, mm -hmm. and, and Saturn to almost be like nearly a monotone of, right. you know, sort of a creamish to whitish color. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that night on Friday night, like, like you said, Saturn had like a, like sort of a burnt orange tone, like a much darker, much, much dark, more yeah. colorful, uh, appearance than Jupiter, which had a, yeah, very yeah, it, rich, dark color. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, like you say, Jupiter was very bright, very white, um, you know, outside of the Northern equatorial band, which, you know, had a, you know, the, the brownish tones to it. Yeah. Um, it, it almost, it, it reversed my tonal expectations of those planets or what I thought they yeah, were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was uh, really, really interesting. Um, you know, you kind of wish you could have that once a year. <laughs> I wish they did this once yeah. a year. That would be, uh, that would really be some, something else. And I think that we'd, we'd hear more of that, but uh, yeah, it certainly was uh, was a different, uh, a different experience. That's, uh, that's for sure. So yeah. I, um, you said you were, did you use, did you say you use the, um, it's like the Royal Astro 60 millimeter high, what's like an F 11 or 12 or something. Is that what you um, it's an F 15. Um, and yes, it is, uh, it's a Tasco, but the optics were by Royal Astro optics by Royal Astro. I, I always go with the optics. Like I have a Borg yeah. five inch, but it's the, optics made by Pentax. So I often call it the Pentax five. Um, so I used my 60 millimeter as well, uh, which is an F10, uh, apocromat by attack Hashi. And, uh, yeah, I originally I try, well, I had low power in there and that it was really cool. Cause I can get, well, it was, uh, I guess 20 power. So I'm getting about a, I guess about a four degree field of view or so with, with my, my lower power finder. And, uh, and that was pretty neat. That was pretty neat to see, uh, just like that. And then, um, I put in, I think I put in like about a hundred power, but mm -hmm. I was having trouble getting it. Um, I decided just to use an LDAS mount, uh, that, that doesn't have tracking and, uh, just from where I set up and just like with the cold and the wind, the way that I had to kind of finagle the, the equipment, um, I was just having trouble, like getting that in, in the field of view, like sort of eyeballing it and then getting it lined up. So I gave up on that pretty quick just cause it was so, so cold. You know, if it was, if it was minus three or minus seven or above zero, like 
I would have fooled around with it for another five or 10 minutes. But at that point, I was just so cold. I actually had to uh, go back inside, warm up and figure out a better plan. Cause I did want to see it under some power. And I was actually mm-hmm. starting to think at that moment, it's so cold and I'm getting so cold at this point that uh, I'm actually not even going to, going to see it under any power at all. So I went out and yeah, amazing. Like you, I put in a 10 power that gave me 60 power and, uh, and I really enjoyed the view uh, at 60 power. I think that probably was um, around the best power to go anyway. I, originally I thought like somewhere in like sort of the 60 to 80 zone um, would mm-hmm. probably give, get the best view, but uh, yeah. So I used a 10 millimeter that has a 70 degree field of view. So 0.7 uh, degree field. So it was, it was amazing to have that kind of power and then to be able to see the detail on, on those planets. Um, and then, you know, w- with that kind of field, like they're in the field for a long time. So I was actually able to go in and warm up um, for a few minutes and then come out and still get them back in the field without messing around too much. So I was able to, to get uh, some decent time on it um, using that. I kind of had wished it was warmer, but you know, you're right. If it had been warmer, I I think the view wouldn't have been as good. And it was an amazing view. It was really, really good. I was really shocked. It blew me away. I didn't anticipate the view would be as clear and crisp as it was. I 100% thought we would not see any detail on the disc of, uh, of Jupiter when we were able to use powers high enough that, that might reveal uh, disc detail or really see like separation between the rings of Saturn and the globe of Saturn. And easily we could see that, you know, yeah. and, and my wife came out, she had a view. Um, Cause you know, of course um, she's like, I want to see all the big events. Don't, don't bring me out to see like stuff that's not worth looking at. I want to see all the good ones. So I'm like, this is another good one. And so she came out and she had a really, like, I think she observed it as much as I did because I went in to warm up and she, she stayed out for about 10 or 15 while I warmed up. Then I went back out. And so that was nice. It was still in the field of view. So I had like sort of a a hired hand manual tracking assistant there. (laughs) And uh, she was like, yeah, that's amazing. And I knew it must've been because I think, I think she's impacted by the cold even more than I am. And, uh, and she, she was really blown away by the fact that, you know, you could see, and she could see the detail on, on Jupiter as well as the, you know, the, the definition of the rings of Saturn as, as well. So, uh, you know, she said that was really one of the more impressive sites actually that she's ever had. So, you know, I think, think that just goes to show, uh, but, uh, unfortunately the weather, I mean, right now, Shane, it is snowing a blizzard, at least uh, my in my area of the city. I don't know what it's doing where you yeah. are. But we've we've got about a, an inch and, and a bit down, or getting on to three or four centimeters. Yeah, yeah, it's snowing pretty good here as well. Um, Which yeah, we need, you know, th- we need it. Yeah, yeah. Everything's yeah, covered in true. ice, and I kind of would rather be walking around on snow than on sheets of ice everywhere. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. I, I think Friday night, you know, I'm glad we both uh, got out. I was, yeah. I was kind of questioning whether I would because of how cold it was. But when I looked at the forecast, it was, it was a no brainer. Just had to yeah. go for it. So yep. um, you glad we you did. Yep. Uh, Saturday was such a strange day. You know, it started off as a beautiful day, clear, bunch of clouds came in. Oh, I thought then, for sure we were going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And then later in the afternoon, it cleared off again. And I thought, oh, perfect. And then another bank of clouds came in and, and some really, really strong winds. Yeah. But, um, you know, I did catch a naked eye glimpse of it around yep. 7, 7.30. It just kind of broke up a bit. And, um, you know, this is kind of, I'm, I'm struggling with this a little bit, actually. So the view through the telescope was outstanding. You know, it mm-hmm. was so neat to see them, you know, the tonal differences, and also like the size differences, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, to, to see both Jupiter and Saturn and, and see how wide Saturn is with the rings compared to Jupiter was, was a really neat thing to be able yeah, to, you could to fit, observe. You could, you could really fit Saturn inside of, of Jupiter, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, you know, I've read, I've read that size comparison before, but until you yeah. see it in the same field of view, it's, it's yeah. hard to appreciate. Yeah, it just, it um, kind of looked like if you if you took them and you just sort of, rolled them in your hand and then just kind of drop them on a napkin or something, right? Like a black uh, serviette, (laughs) right? And, and you really sort of had them there to kind of compare. Um, Like I said, when you get into astronomy, you think you're going to have these sort of views. That's, that's the kind of view that you're expecting to have just to be able to make that kind of comparison. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, keep going. yeah. So, so what I, what I'm kind of struggling with is even though that view is so phenomenal, 
I really, really, really liked that naked eye view mm. of them. And, and the yeah. reason for that is through a telescope, you know, I'm used to seeing multiple galaxies in a field of view, multiple objects mm -hmm. in a field of view. Yeah. And, you know, I love that. But like the scale is kind of lost on me a little bit. Now, when I have the whole sky, so naked eye view, when I have the whole sky there and I see the moon up to the left and then I see how close Saturn and Jupiter are in comparison to the entire sky, that, that was a more humbling experience, I think, than actually seeing them through the telescope. Mm -hmm. um, because I had a greater uh, context for how close they truly were. Um, so that's why I'm struggling a little bit. I don't know which view I really like more. I, okay. the, the naked eye view is almost seeming more impactful to me, which is odd. I wasn't huh. expecting that either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got to say, I'm definitely with the telescopic view of this one. It was neat to yeah. see. It's neat to see naked eye, but um, seeing it through the telescope like that is... Uh, that is just really, I mean, they've kind of been paired together within 10 degrees for, for the past just about year now, it seems. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, you know, to, to see them finally kind of, kind of meet up like that. Now I did get, I did get an interesting view on the 16th naked eye oh, okay. and we had, uh, not great conditions that night. And yeah. from my upstairs uh, window, I, I can see pretty good to the South Southwest. And I was able to see the moon and Jupiter and Saturn uh, sort of all together. Now, the moon was actually pretty far below them, um, mm -hmm. but they were kind of all in that same uh, section of sky. And, and it had been very cloudy, but it had just cleared. I came up to do something. And uh, when I, when I you know, sort of was walking back downstairs and shut the light up, I could see them there. So I called, called my wife up and she had a look too, but I didn't, I, I wish I kind of had had my binoculars there, but mm -hmm. I didn't even have time to go and get my binoculars before the moon kind of slipped behind, um, you know, a distant house or, or something like that. And then, you know, uh, the, the cloud like pretty much came in and swallowed up Jupiter and Saturn again, right at that point. But I just sort of had this, this really neat view of all those things, uh, Right, right through the clouds uh, like that. I, I did see them last night as well, just through the window. And yeah. you know, through a window, it's you know, it's a little bit disappointing. But it was it was just way too too windy last night uh, to really really do much of anything. But I think you said you you did go back out um, with uh, with a new telescope last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I've talked a little bit about my mini Borg on here a few times. This little fifty millimeter f five uh, Acromat. Um, it's really a finder scope, but you know, with far better optics than your run of the mill finder scope. And then of course, uh, the ability to add different eyepieces to it and, and vary the magnification and fields of view. Mm -hmm. Um, so the real test that I've been waiting to do is, uh, is with a two inch eyepiece that provides the widest field of view that you can really, uh, get in a telescope. Um, because up until this point, I've just used the inch and a quarter uh, eyepieces, and I've been quite thrilled and pleased with those results. Um, but what I was needing was a, uh, a tube ring to arrive before I could actually test out the two-inch stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so that tube ring did arrive, and um, last night was, was not a nice night outside. It was cold. I think when I went out, the wind was 50 kilometers per hour, gusting to 60 well, yeah, um, I was surprised because because you reported back after you came in some yeah. time, and it was it was forty five, you know, steady yeah. forty five yeah. at that time. Yeah. yeah, so I I was in the backyard on my deck, which you know provided me the the shelter from the wind that I needed, um, but it wasn't an ideal location no. to do any real observing, and it was cold out, and I didn't feel like bundling up, so I was just outside in a hoodie and no <laughs> toque or anything. <laughs> Um, so this like the kid was, I saw running behind my house the other day and, yeah, you know, yeah. and it was minus 30 that day. And I'm like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a good idea. Uh, but I was just, you know, I didn't want, I, I, I didn't want to invest all the time cause it was actually getting close to my bedtime too. So it, you know, I, I really just wanted to see what this two inch, uh, eyepiece would look like through this tiny little acromat. Mm -hmm. Um, so I used a, a 31 millimeter Teleview Nagler, which is an enormous eyepiece, um, you know, not just physically, but also weight wise, it, it's huge. Yeah, it's like a um, beer stein. Yeah, it looks obscene on that telescope, actually. But uh, um, I, I took it out and I had a, a look at Orion really quickly. 
And uh, it's kind of neat. This is my first view of Orion actually this year. So um, I always, I always like to ring in the winter season with that, but Mm -hmm. I could not believe this field of view, Chris. And um, maybe to start off with just the numbers, um, that eyepiece in that telescope yields around a 10 degree field of view. I'll have to actually measure this to see what it, it really is, but it's right around that 10 ish degrees. And um, so I put, I put the telescope on Orion and I've, I've never seen a view like that before. Um, so, you know, the, the belt of Orion was, was well, well placed in the field of view mm-hmm. um, M42, uh, which is, you know, the tip of the sword in, in uh, the belt of Orion and then Delta Oranid, um, which is just kind of a little further down from M42. All of this was easily placed in the field of view. And I'm estimating I still had like 20% field of view available around the edges of all of that. Um, It was just enormous. Um, It was fairly, like I would say it was crisp to the edge. Now the one, the one, the the reason why I'm not confidently stating that is, um, and I mentioned this to you, Chris, is I think I had a little bit of a, a flexing issue. So when you have optics that fast at F5, everything really has to be aligned exceptionally well. And like any owners of uh, Newtonian telescopes, like, uh, you know, light bridges, uh, obsessions, whatever, whatever you might have, if you have a fast one, F5 or, or faster, you know how important um, proper collimation is. Like you, any small error in your alignment will um, impact your your, you know, tightness of stars and all of that kind of stuff. Um, because so when I took this thing out, I focused it, I couldn't believe how crisp everything was. And then all of a sudden things weren't so crisp. And I was wondering like, is this some field curvature I'm dealing with? But what it was, was the two inch diagonal was sagging just a little bit in the holder. And, um, just that little bit was causing, you know, some focus issues. So if I, if I just sort of propped up or, or put some pressure on the diagonal from the back, everything crisped up again. Yeah. Um, so I think I want to just play around with that. I don't know. I don't know what I need to do to fix it, or, or I, I may not even have had the thumb screws as tight as I should have um, to hold that diagonal in. Uh, it doesn't help that that eyepiece weighs something like three pounds or two and a half pounds or something like that. So it puts a lot of stress on that, that connection of the diagonal to the telescope. Um, but assuming that I can solve that, wow, this is going to be a, a fun little, a fun little tool to use, uh, when we're out observing. Yeah. I'm like, I'm super jealous. I, I always thought of me as sort of the wide field champion. So, uh, <laughs> well, well, you know, um, if, that is an amazing can, wide field. Yeah. Yeah. If I can get this going, um, you know, if I could solve this, uh, uh, the sagging issue, um, Man, you know, I, I've got another one with your name on it, so you can give it a try and see. I'll tell it. you, I'm I'm excited for that. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited for that. We could do an optics exchange. I'll try to find an interesting optic for you around in my. I mean, I I have surplus eighty degree prototype eyepieces from a Canadian manufacturer here, so you could mm-hmm. get something interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and I was thinking too, like, and, and maybe some listeners are wondering, like, why are why would you use such a heavy eyepiece? And um, that's a fair question. Um, now at f5, so that's that's fast optics. And if you want fully corrected across that field of view, you know, meaning sharp stars to the edge, it's pretty hard to get around big heavy optics because they need an awful lot of glass to correct uh, for the fast optics. Um, there definitely are lighter eyepieces in, in that realm, um, that would provide a similar field of view, but I don't think they would be as well corrected. Um, I think probably the second best one, like in terms of, you know, uh, field sharpness, um, and you know, a lighter weight choice would probably be the 35 millimeter panoptic. But then I think you start to get um, some potential pin cushion. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how, how well it would perform, but, uh, anyway, it was a fun little, uh, experiment, um, and more to come on that telescope. I, I definitely will be, um, you know, using it a little bit more here over the coming weeks. I hope you know, we have some clear skies hopefully, and, uh, you know, I can report back a little bit more. Yeah. Heavy eyepiece. That would be a good online pseudonym for you. 
<laughs> I guess so. Hey, my new avatar. There you go. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to see how that pans out. It really, really gets me thinking about, you know, either getting like a, like a 50 millimeter or I know Borg um, has that 55 millimeter FL. Um, yeah. And, you know, just, just diving into something like that, I, you know, why I would want to do this. So with my 60 millimeter, I modified it for, or had it modified um, with a two inch um, feather touch focuser. So I can use a, my 40 millimeter, 70 degree in that. And that gives me around, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like eight degrees or something like that. So I'm not sure I might be stepping down in aperture, a, a, a small step down in aperture for a small increase in field of view. But anyway, this stuff is so much fun to play with that it's really it is, hard yeah. to resist, right? Yeah, how wide, yeah. how wide can you, can you actually, yeah, can you actually take things? So yeah, that's, well, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and the neat thing with that mini 50, cause I've thought about the Borg 55 FL as well. Um, and I know you can get that FL in a lot of configurations, but I think for the visual configuration, isn't it like a F six or F seven? It's a little bit longer, I think. Uh, no, it's still four and a half. Oh, with is the, it really? With the focal okay. reducer, it's like three, eight or something, I think. Oh, wow. So okay. it is. Okay. And then you're, you're going to deal with what's called field curvature in a, mm -hmm. in a small, uh, short focal length, uh, instrument. And the field curvature is, um, a result of the curve of the lens. And if you think about a lens as simply one small circular portion out of a large sphere or a ball of glass, which it's not, but, but that is how it's designed actually. Um, the smaller, the focal length. So if you have a have a focal length of, of 250 millimeters, then that focal point at 250 means that if you made that into a ball, I think you'd have like a ball that was uh, 500 millimeters or, or 20 uh, inches across or something, something like that. I could be getting this wrong. I'm talking off the top of my head, but you'd have a, have a ball that's pretty small. Now, if you think about um, my refractor, that's 740 millimeters, uh, or however long that is, you'd end up with a ball of, of maybe a meter and a half or something like that around, or, or even longer, I guess, maybe like two meters around. So it's a pretty big ball, you know, and the, the sort of longer your focal length, the larger that ball is. But you can imagine sort of trying to look through that curvature, um, the actual curvature of, of the lens, um, no matter where you took it out of that ball, the smaller the ball, the greater the curvature of that lens is. Now, there's an interesting way to fix this. And that's with a field flattener. There's not many field flatteners. There's only one that I know of um, to actually correct for this. And it's called the TS flat two, um, which can only be purchased as far as I know through telescopic service out of Germany. And I bought one last year, um, but that needs to be pushed far ahead. And somebody has done this apparently with the 55 FL, but apparently, well, with the, the, the shorter, the focal length, the further up the field flatter needs to be. So basically, I guess when you do it, it has to be lens, field flattener, diagonal eyepiece. So basically that's your, that's your optical system. Like it's all just sort of sandwiched right together because um, you know, a 55 millimeter with uh, with a F four and a half is like whatever it is, 250 or 255 or something like that. Um, so it's, it's all pretty tight anyway, hmm. it's kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the 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 these fast optic refractors are kind of an interesting beast. Um, yeah, yeah. I I bought it. I haven't been able to get it working exactly the way that I want. So I I don't know. I I still have to play with it a bit, and I can play with it on my sixty two. I, I haven't done that uh, either. I don't know why, but I I probably on some of these nights, especially this winter, I should get that out uh, and experiment with. Um, because during, during this time where we're really not able to go out and, uh, travel the dark skies as much as we want, I, I, you know, really should be, uh, working on my gear a little bit, a uh, little bit more. So I was up to a couple other things this week, Shannon, if you're interested in any of this, we got a, got a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. So on Friday night, I was, uh, I'm on the, the history committee. Um, for the RASC, which is the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And Shane, I should send you the link to send out because we recorded it and it's available freely on YouTube. Mm. And uh, 
we, uh, we are doing these monthly presentations. Um, and it's my, it's my role for these presentations to work as, as a little bit of a moderator and to um, pick up and, and read the questions uh, from participants. Um, because we, we get so many people, we get like sometimes up to 200 people on these things. And, uh, and we don't know a lot of the folks. So we don't know if someone's going to get on there and, you know, say who knows what. Um, so it's my role to kind of moderate all that. And, and I do know a lot of the members because I've lived uh, all over the place. And so I know probably like half the people sometimes that, that are in these things because I belong to some of the bigger astronomy clubs in Canada at one point or another. Um, but this talk was by uh, Brad Schaefer. And he talked about the star of Bethlehem and sort of in particular, if, uh, if maybe the, uh, the conjunction here, I'm not going to spoil it for people who want to, who want to watch. And I think it's well worth watching um, uh, whether, whether or not the star of Bethlehem uh, could have been something like the, uh, the conjunction that, that we're actually witnessing uh, during this time. So maybe, uh, maybe Shane uh, looks like we're going to be clouded out on the 21st. Um, and I, I might suggest that if, if people were, were also clouded out, maybe they could, uh, could enjoy this, uh, this presentation on, on that night and, and have, a, have a little bit of fun. Yeah, yeah, great idea. For sure, I'll tweet that out. Yeah. And uh, let's see. So what was funny about that? What was funny about that talk? And I didn't, I didn't know this going in. So last, I think it was last week or one of our recent um, podcasts, I had mentioned... Um, well, on the one for, for observing the Great Great Conjunction, I had mentioned uh, that I looked up and tried to understand the astrology of it, mm -hmm. you may recall, and, and I couldn't I do. figure it out. It was just like super confusing. So anyway, <laughs> this is sort of a, a really sort of strange twist in fate. So Brad Schaefer's talk on the Star of Bethlehem is completely focused on the astrological event. <laughs> well, that worked and, out good. <laughs> and if... And I told him, because so what's neat, and I mean, he's, he's a well-known astronomer and, and uh, sometimes and he writes articles for Sky and Telescope and uh, a really amazing speaker and super nice person. Like, I can't say what a, what a great person uh, he seemed to be when, when we were talking, uh, but he's also really into the, the visual aspect. So he's, he was a professional astronomer. I think he just retired and, um, and, he's, and he's doing a lot of sort of archaeo astronomy and and his own personal observations, which I was super interested in. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm interested in the astrophysics, but you know, we're interested in sort of the um, looking at the sky for yourself. And he definitely is into that. Um, almost seemed like he's more into that now than, than anything. Um, but anyway, he gave this talk and it was focused on um, more the astrology of it. If somebody had told me, and I told him this, if somebody had told me that I would be uh, sitting and spending two hours listening to an astrology talk, um, I would have said that will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I said he proved me wrong, and I got to admit, I I I was I was riveted. It was it's a really good it's a really good talk. I I can't believe how riveted I was to to a talk on astrology. So there we go. There we go. And he did, uh, he did a remarkable job, but I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it, give it away. I think if people are that interested, um, they should, uh, they should go and, uh, and look up RASC um, on YouTube. You'll find the RASC YouTube feed. Um, you can probably look up Brad Schaefer or uh, RASC star of Bethlehem and it's B-E-T-H-L-E-H-E-M not uh, as I used to spell it with an A at the end when I was a kid. So yeah, so there was that. There was that. You should you should watch it, Shane. I think you would, you know, if you were doing something like put it on and kind of you can listen to it. There's like his slides are are um, are good for annotating, but but his sort of audio presence um, is is excellent. Um, so you you can listen to it without even watching the slides. It, it would have made an amazing podcast. I got to say it was excellent. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that, you've, you sold me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, the, the, and the other folks who, who've delivered presentations as well, and they're all on there. Uh, they've all been good. Um, and on this one, unlike the others, I spent an awful long time actually moderating it. So uh, you'll get to see me and all my podcasting glory. You can see the mic in the room that I do this podcast in. Um, I did turn off my Christmas lights though. Cause Early on, Brad kind of made some sort of comment about them being rather distracting. So 
you, I think you might see them in the beginning, but then, then they go off. Anyway, um, so the other thing, this, this was quite a banner week for my astronomy activity, which is saying something, because I think last week I said how, uh, how busy I am with work. And last week was one of the busiest weeks that I have ever had at work. <laughs> and here I am observing conjunctions, moderating presentations. And on Thursday night, I got one of the most interesting emails. And we've had a lot of interesting emails from our participants or from our mm -hmm. listeners as well. And sorry, mm -hmm. if I ever say participants, the reason why I use that term is that I work on a study and everybody is a participant and I like legally have to call them that. So I'm always throwing that in because it's by default what I say. But I, I had an email from uh, Sky and Telescope contributing editor, uh, Alan Whitman, who is, uh, who is a renowned uh, visual observer. And uh, he writes uh, some, some of the best, uh, you know, I personally think he is one of the best astronomy, most inspirational astronomy writers uh, that I've ever read. He's never, I don't believe he's ever written a book though. I really wish uh, he would or would have, um, but I actually have most of his articles. I've, I've cut them out and, uh, and have them uh, in a, an accordion file folder here. And uh, anyway, he wrote me because I have a article in the RASC Observer's Handbook called Wide Field Wonders, which is right up your alley, Shane, with your new, uh, uh, you know, wide field scope that, that really beats any wide field scope I've ever owned. Um, but Alan was uh, asking me about IC4756, which is an open cluster on the uh, Serpens uh, Orpheucus border. And it's an open cluster. And uh, the reason why Alan wrote is that... Uh, he was talking about how this uh, was actually, and so in the handbook, I have it listed as Graf's nebula or Graf's cluster. And Graf was, was an observer about like, I don't know, like 75 years ago or so. And he sort of had this independent discovery, but it was actually originally found by, um, oh, I forget the person's name, but it was on the Harvard plates taken in 1922 uh, in Peru. Um, it's not Selinger, but it's something like that, the, the person who, who actually found it. But apparently, uh, it's actually in the Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes, which we've mentioned several times in the podcast, mm -hmm. um, which mm -hmm. is by the Reverend T.W. Webb and edited by Margaret uh, W. Mayall. And it's a two-volume set. This one is, is uh, uh, the second volume on, quote-unquote, the stars, but it also includes uh, several dozen uh, deep sky objects as well. And so Alan wrote and said, actually, that's a, a, a discovery by a web. And I thought, what is he talking about? I've never noticed this. And I mean, honestly, I was like, really? Like, hmm. I was really surprised because I'm a big fan of the celestial objects for common telescopes by web and had never noticed this. And I use that as my reference for all of my writing that I ever do in conjunction with uh, star clusters by um, Archnell and Hines. So, of course, I grab the Archinal and Hines. I grab Webb's book. I look it up in Archinal and Hines. Not there. That book was published in 2003. Look it up in Webb. And sure enough, in, in Webb's book, which was uh, written or published, I think in like, and I, I don't hear it in front of me, but I think it's like um, 1859 or something like that. So decades before. Mm -hmm. um, turns out that, uh, that it definitely is in Webb. Um, it's just under the description of NGC 6633, which is another open cluster nearby. Um, but it's, it's not in a lot of text and you only see it coming into text uh, in about uh, 2010 or so. But apparently uh, Alan said it was um, realized by, uh, uh, by uh, an observer named uh, Gottlieb in 2007 or something like that. And it's sort of gradually percolating it, its way through that, uh, that Webb actually is the the uh, very clearly the original uh, discoverer um, of this uh, of this open cluster. So I was really excited because it's always really fun when somebody writes me and says, uh, "Read your article," or "Read your looking at your list" uh, as part of my research for writing for Sky and Telescope, and I noticed this. That always makes me really excited that that something that that I wrote is is being referenced by Sky and Telescope. So oh, yeah. I thought that was cool. really exciting for me. And then, um, you know, just um, 
I had mentioned again, like in a recent episode that I was looking for a little open cluster project. And I was like, should I do like maybe the best clusters that you can see from a light polluted sky or what I'm going to do exactly. And then when I started looking into this and the best reference for this, I think it's on page 383 of, uh, I just call it the Steinecke, but it's um, by Wolfgang Steinecke. And it's the, I think it's like the open, open clusters and nebulae um, of the NGC or something like that. Anyway, people can look up Steinecke uh, and, and open clusters and nebulae and, and they will find his, uh, his text, which came out in 2010. Uh, and I have a copy of that. It's uh, I, I own it. I've, I've probably even read the section, but there's so much rich information in there that, uh, and it's so wonderful as a reference book. Um, you really have to know kind of, kind of what you're looking for there in order to, uh, in order to, to pull out the salient uh, relevant bits of, of info that, that you might just be looking for. So I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through, and I think there's about 80 deep sky objects that Webb uh, talks about. And mm -hmm. it turns out that it looks like there's probably like three or four, at least, and this is without my own research. And so I was going to list them all in this podcast today, but I thought, no, I need to do the research first. Uh, I, I sort of missed this the first time through and uh, clearly um, um, I'm missing some things from, from my own uh, background uh, in, in researching these clusters by Webb. Um, and I really love uh, Webb's work and, 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 uh, and his observing style from the 1850s uh, or, or around that time. And, you know, so I'm really excited to kind of dive in and start going, hmm, all right, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll start with his original ones, but maybe, maybe what I'll do over a period of time is, is sort of do um, like a bit of a web observing uh, run because he has objects that are messy objects, NGC objects, IC objects, all kinds of Trumpler objects, all kinds of different objects that are in there um, that are visible in small telescopes, but I've actually never seen them brought together all in one spot. I think there's about 80 or 90 or maybe hundred or something like that. Like it's a nice, uh, list length, while at the same time, I think it's a nice sampling of, of what is visible and, and not all from, from necessarily the same source. So I just thought that might be, uh, be an interesting approach. Um, and for those that are interested, there also is an, an actual web society, um, which is based out of uh, the UK, I believe, um, but it's more of an international society, but they do have meetings think, uh, every year, of course, not, not in person at present, um, somewhere in, in the UK. And I, it's a deep sky observing uh, society. I've often thought I, I should join that, but uh, I'm not sure what I would do because I am already sort of maxed out in all my time for uh, astronomical involvement. Uh, I worry if I get involved into anything more that's not actual observing, then my, my actual observing begins to get diluted at some point. And I'm you know, always trying to make sure I, I balance it as I'm, I'm sure you've, uh, you've come to understand as well, Shane. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that web society, I think, I think a lot of that stuff requires some aperture too. Like, I think those guys are hunting some fairly faint objects. For the most yeah. Part. Yeah. I, I think they're um, an observer that we know who, who was a member of, of the RAC, but I don't think is, is a member at present. Um, but a well-known and renowned uh, visual observer with large aperture, largest aperture um, we have around here uh, is uh, Mark Bratton, who's the author of the Herschel object book uh, from Cambridge. And he observed all the Herschel objects over, over a number of years and took a uh, sizable aperture and, and uh, made, made some trips and eventually, uh, and, and pretty much in order to finish it, he ended up moving uh, out here to Saskatchewan and lived some, uh, you know, just a couple couple hundred kilometers away from us. And maybe not so coincidentally, he lives in the closest community to our favorite dark sky observing site. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. His location is great. Yeah. Uh, great, it's, great place for astronomy. Yeah. It's, it's a really good spot down there. So both, both for uh, clarity, sky transparency and, uh, and darkness, though he observes right in the center of that little town that he lives in. I've, I've been to his observatory and uh, that that's quite the scope. It would be fun to have him on and, and talk observing very, uh, yeah, yeah. very committed and, and intense uh, observer. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really neat, you know, and that's one of the neat things about astronomy is that uh, it's a small community, you know, when, you know, you, you can have these uh, sort of uh, really well-known observers and then 
just reach out and chat with them or, or be in a webinar with them or whatever. It's, it's really, really cool. It's un- unlike anything else where, you know, if I was an amateur artist, I'm probably not going to, or an amateur filmmaker, I'm probably not going to be in a conference with Steven Soderbergh or somebody like that, right? That's like, that's going to be hard to happen. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but with astronomy, no, if, if you're into astronomy and you want to meet anybody, you can probably meet them. Like I've met pretty much anybody I, I ever wanted to meet in astronomy and, um, you know, like, uh, had some, have, have had several meals with like David Levy and people like that, just, um, you know, end up at the same event and they're so, um, you know, friendly and easygoing people. It's, it's pretty easy just to make those kind of arrangements once you, once you get to know them a little bit, very cool. All right. So I think that's just about it for the, for the episode, unless you have anything further to add. No, I think that's it, Chris. I'm going to keep our fing- my fingers crossed for the 21st. Um, one, one forecast shows that we might have an opportunity like between seven and eight PM. So tonight? don't no no Monday night tonight mm. is a washout. There's, I don't think there's any hope for us, but um, you know, be, be at the ready Monday night. We, we may right. get a little break. I took Monday off. I took Monday and Tuesday off. So hopefully. Nice. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, do we want to plug our, our, I don't want to say competition, but we are giving away. Yeah. Uh, just, just people need to write in, but do you want to just talk about what we're doing? Yeah. So we're giving away a copy of the uh, RASC's uh, 2021 Observer's Handbook. Uh, super handy resource, um, albeit uh, mostly focused on or entirely focused on Northern Hemisphere. So uh, Southern Hemisphere folks, it, it's not useless to you, but it, it's not as relevant either. However, um, you know, it's easy to enter this. All you have to do is uh, send us um, uh, a log of one of your observations, a sketch of an observation, or an observation you want to make. And you can email that to us. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and let us know you want to be entered. And uh, it's just going to be a draw, right? We're not, it's not like a competition or anything. Just a random draw. Uh, draw. We're not, we're not using your email addresses for any nefarious means. Really, (laughs) We do not make, I can't can't stress (laughs) enough. We do not make money on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really is just to give away the book. So um, if you're interested and you want to enter the draw, um, email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And we will choose the winner by random draw on, uh, I think like our January 3rd. Yeah. We, I think we will, we will record on January 3rd and that's when we'll draw. So. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. Thank you, Chris. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies. <laughs>